Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the gaming industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to learn about our online digital events. We have some amazing sessions with people in the gaming industry, and you can participate for free and purchase inexpensive passes to our industry-leading business-to-business system. Now, here we go, Indie Game Business. Everybody, welcome to Indie Game Business. You have the pleasure of just dealing with myself and Pontus today. Dan is road tripping it at the moment and cruising down the highway. So we've got Pontus here from Global Top Round. If you're on the newsletter, you've gotten multiple messages from me saying, "Hey, um, you need to sign up by today on to you know potentially yes. get in on their next." funding round, but we'll let Pontus get into that. Uh, first and foremost, I want to thank our wonderful sponsor, Tripwire, for helping us do all of this and grow our show and conferences like way ahead of normal schedule and all that kind of wonderful stuff. <laughs> so with that, uh, Pontus, why don't you give us like the short version of who you are and what you do for the people who may not know yet, but you've done this so many times, chances are we can just like paste in one of your old ones too. So that's good. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for the, the now third appearance on the show. And like you said, I think the first episode we did, we had like a, almost a 30 minute introduction because you kept asking me questions about, you know, the esport background and the game design of the Heroes and New Earth and some other stuff. So yeah, if anybody wants to know more, I think the first episode is way too long introduction. So, yeah, my name is Pontus. <laughs> I'm based in Thailand, Asia. I've been here for a couple of years. Currently the vice president for Global Top Round, a small accelerator slash uh, you know, incubator who basically every single year invests in 10 studios in our so-called Top 10 program. We've changed a lot since last year, so there are more things going on now. But this is probably what we are the most famous for. And so far, we have done uh, 56 total investments in 32 countries. And uh, yeah, we're looking for more studios all the time. And as Jay said, there is about four, no, 15 hours left on the clock to go to globaltopround.com and submit your pitch deck and your game build. So, you know, if that's something you want to do, then uh, be prepared. And then, you know, today I'm going to answer a bunch of questions that you may have so you can make sure your pitch deck is in safe hands. Is that short and we have a load of questions. So, you know, fair warning, folks, this one may run a little long. Pontus said he's got three hours since it's the middle oh, of the night for him. Anyway, <laughs> um, I've, I've got plenty of time. So do me a favor, though. We've got a lot of questions coming in from Discord in the podcast questions channel. And that is wonderful. But if y'all want to do me a real solid, you'll post them in chat in YouTube or Facebook or LinkedIn, Twitch, wherever, wherever you are, because that'll help me get it going. All right. So let's start at somewhat of the top. The 
what is the most important thing an indie dev should know when they are raising capital? Ooh, okay. Uh, I just did a very long presentation on this in Germany a couple of weeks back. So um, let me see if I can answer this in a short way. Um, I think that first and foremost, always have a demo. And yes, that is a little counterintuitive. Like there are a lot of people who get, you know, funded with just a paper pitch. But in reality, 95% of those being funded from a paper pitch are experienced teams with backgrounds and worked for larger companies and have a track record. Most of the indie developers that come with a paper pitch to at least to us, maybe other publishers and investors are different, have no previous experience and no demo. And it's just for us impossible to finance. So generally, I think you should have a demo before you raise money, whether it's you know, friends and family money or whatever. And that brings me to that particular portion. Um, a lot of people say, well, okay, what if I don't have savings? What if I don't have, you know, enough time to build on this part-time to actually get the demo that I think will be pitchable? And well, the answer is that, well, then you're going to have to simply just, you know, build on it for years because it's always better to take your time, you know, talk to friends and family, save up money or go for grants with governments, which is publicly available in many countries nowadays to actually build that first initial prototype and demo. And why is that? Because if you go to an investor, let's say like us, right, and we actually really like your paper pitch, I'm not going to be nice and take 5% of your company. I'm going to take 30 or 40% because you're coming to me with no experience and no demo asking me to give you a bunch of money to develop a potential demo or vertical slice. The amount of risk for me is insanely high. However, if you were to come to me later on with that demo, it doesn't matter to me how big your background was or what you were able to accomplish in the past. What matters is what you've been able to create with the limited resources that you had. So it puts everything in a very different perspective. So the session I did in Germany was basically, how do you find money before you pitch people like investors and, and publishers? And like I said, savings, grants, uh, potential friends and family that actually may borrow you the money as a loan rather than an equity investment. Or in some cases, maybe you give them a small portion of the company. I personally think this is what you need to do first. Then once you reach the prototype stage, of course, it would be great for you to come up with a pitch deck that has a lot of information and you can find this all over Google or you can you know, email me and I'll send you the link, but Google works. Um, there are companies like Raw Fury that uh, provides free pitch deck templates that really has the basic information that we need to move forward. When indie developers come to us, we don't exactly expect you to have every single answer or know how to build the best pitch deck in the world. Rather, we just need you to show us as much as possible. And this is a good start to do so. So even though I might not agree with everything in these templates, it's a really good start. So to yeah, wrap it up before I continue, uh, try to build a prototype or a demo first. It will save you time. Now, if you're able to do that, the actual lead time between getting a yes or a no is much shorter than trying to do a paper pitch for a year or two or three until you eventually theoretically get money. So it's not just a matter of building the prototype. It's about the time in between getting funded or not getting funded. So, and, and I too will say, unless you have a gigantic track record in the industry, yeah. you're going to pretty much have to have a, a demo. And it's even with a demo, it's a lot harder than it used to be because we see so many demos and so many games, you know, now that you've got to be able to stand out. So when you're building that demo, keep in mind, if your game has specific unique points or, or core things that, you know, help it stand out in the crowd, make sure you show that in the demo because that's going to be absolutely 
key part of all of this. Um, all right, so we're gonna start. And look, if you if you keep going on like this at the end of the questions, Pontus, it's like you're screwing up my. I can't check off the questions that I have. So help me out here, dude. Dan's on the road. Okay. <clears throat> all right. So next one. How do you find companies? emails contact pages to reach out so the powell group's got the publisher list go to the website powellgroupconsulting.com or go to indiegame.business it's there and our friends at gd bay and alina have an investor version of that over on their page i don't know how the exact link but it's just google gd bay investor list and it's there so once you have one of those you know who you need to find in the first at least how do you find who to meet who to talk to who to reach out to so personally i think a great way nowadays is actually twitter because i mean twitter is where i think a lot of us uh, publishers and investors spend our time on it's where we also talk very casually so you know i i post a lot of cooking tweets and then i tag like our publisher friends because we all like cooking fernando rizzo from uh, hooded horse is one of them for example and a joshua garrity sorry johan Johan, yes. Yeah. Well, no, Johan, I'm, I'm just annoyed by it because every time he cooks amazing Asian dishes and it pisses me off. Because I don't want to look at it. I'm like, you know, I looked at them, I'm like, God damn it, I want that in my hands right now. <laughs> so I'm tired of Johan. <laughs> no, but I personally think Twitter is a great way. Uh, it's because not a lot of people reach out to us there. So getting a DM on Twitter is very easy to filter. But on LinkedIn, you know, I get 500 Web3 companies reaching out to me every day, and there's so many LinkedIn requests. And also, in fairness, I can't accept everybody on LinkedIn because generally that's people I've met before or I kind of have some sort of a connection with. So if you don't have access to anybody's private email, you can always use the official one. If we're going to use Johan as an example in Raw Fury, I think their one is magic at rawfury.com or something. And I know they actually take a look at this at all the time. For us in Global Top Round, it's scouting at globaltopround.com. So most of publishers and investors have this like group email where it gets tossed into the database. Of course, this means that you'll be put in order, meaning that, you know, like they have 400 before you and they're going to take you like in the, in the appropriate order most of the time, which is why I prefer you to also try to reach out to on Twitter, or Facebook or other places where you can find us, because otherwise, again, I'm sorry, you we're going to take it in order. And if it's on Twitter and I really like what I'm looking at, you know, you might get bumped up. Right. Um, and if you can't catch us on DM, just try to tweet at us, you know, in the in public. Um, Another great place is Reddit. You know, we take a look and scout at all the Reddit uh, groups. We scout in all the Facebook groups. You know, the Screenshot Saturday, I think it's called, on, on Indie uh, on indie Dev, on Facebook. Yeah, well, it's on Twitter. They do Screenshot Saturday on, on Twitter, Twitter, too. Oh, okay, yeah. So, for example, every week we look at that, every single time. And then there are amazing people like Liam Twos, who runns... Uh, Pitchy Game. I forgot the name. Pitchy Game, sorry. I met sorry, Liam in person. <laughs> Oh, really? Liam found me at, at Gamescom, I, and he happened to find me like in 30 minutes that I wasn't in a meeting, and I was just like, I could tell, see him over my shoulder, and I'm like, there is some dude just like standing here staring at me, and then when I turned around, I was like, oh my God, it's Liam. So we have a photo on Twitter of, you know, Indie Game Business and, and Pitchy Game all at the same place. Yeah. Um, no, and, it's an amazing tool, for sure. So along the same lines, you know, if we're pitching email addresses, you know, if you want to send it to the power, your game to the Powell group for the publishers and the investors that we scout for, you send it to games at powellgroupconsulting.com. Yeah. The 
other, you know, and I'm behind on this. I need to do another one. We usually do. Actually, actually, sorry to jump in there because I forgot there's one tool that we started using in our Legion, which is really valuable. Uh, it's called, uh, it's a website called snove.io and they have like a LinkedIn prospect finder and you can free of charge do a couple of websites a month where it basically goes over all the metadata on the back end of the system and it finds all the official emails. What uh, is it? And it snove.io, S-N-O-V.io. It's become our new favorite tool to basically try to find email addresses of people. And it works on LinkedIn too. So if you have a public profile, it will scout several times and it will show you if there's a verified or an unverified email. And it works 80% of the time, which is pretty crazy high. So this is a great way to find emails as well. So we use something similar. I think it's hunter.io. I have to go yeah, and that, actually that about. look it up. And then uh, there's another one, mail tester is another one so if you have to like start guessing email addresses it'll tell you sometimes <laughs> if it's valid or not um but yeah I, I will apologize to everybody i'm usually really good about doing our little monthly webinars about how you find the people but i haven't had time lately so we'll get that but yes sure next all right so how far along should you be in your game before you consider pitching to publishers so honestly, as I mentioned earlier, you, just a demo or a prototype is more than enough. I mean, it depends on what you're expecting. The earlier you are, the worse terms you're going to get because the, the higher the risk for the publisher or the investor. That's basically how it works, right? So if you finance half your game and you come with a pretty solid vertical slice and you pitch it, there's a chance you'll be able to negotiate better terms because they basically de-risk what they're seeing. But you can start super early. And, and the good thing is that you can always come back. So... Let's say that you got your first prototype in a demo and you feel like it's solid enough. You feel like it's showing a couple of the things in the pitch deck that you're that you're telling us about. Feel free to send it out, but don't send it to everybody just yet. We always recommend that you send it to a few first. Maybe, and you know, don't take this the wrong way, publishers. Maybe to the publishers that you don't necessarily have as your top picks, like the dream publishers you want to work with. Rather, the people that you think would be potential good partners to get some good feedback. That way, at least you get to see, like, what do these publishers think about your game build? Do they think you are ready? And if all of them kind of say the same thing, you probably shouldn't keep pitching it. The problem a lot of developers do is that they send it to every single publisher on, for example, Jay's list. And then, you know, they burn that first bridge, meaning that, you know, the publishers will take a look at this. They'll play it. They'll be like, nah. And now it's going to take another six months before you can pitch them again. So pitch a limited amount of publishers when you have that first game that you really feel comfortable with. See what the feedback is. If the feedback's positive, you can continue pitching more. If the feedback's negative, maybe you have to go back to a couple more changes and come back later on. That's better to do. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with going to a game event or sending out an email just to introduce yourself and let us know that you're going to have a build six months later. Just so that you're already in our database. We already saw your face. We heard a little bit about you know, the vision and the story of your pitch. And then six months later, you come and show us, I pitched you this, and here's the proof of it. That's one of our favorite things, like listening to a pitch or seeing a timeline or a roadmap. And then six months later, you show us that you actually finished this roadmap. That's that's a great thing to just show how to de-risk the project. So, yeah, I think that's early enough. That's the, to answer, there's a follow-up, a very similar question in Discord saying, you know, how far along does the game have to be before someone is going to invest in this? And the oh. answer, non-answer to that is 
the less track record that you have in the industry, the yeah. further along you're going to have to take it because it's all about limiting that risk and early Definitely. stage but teams. There are exceptions, so we well, have yeah. Had there's exceptions. exceptions. There's yeah. exceptions to everything. But yes, of course, of course. <laughs> no, but what I'm saying is that even if you don't have a track record and your pitch or your idea is something fresh, it doesn't mean like you have 10 USPs, but you know you have something really fresh that you can at least show one or two mechanics in the way that you want to do so, you can still get funded, like even by the large people. Uh, we've had a couple of developers with no previous experience that have closed seven digit numbers in their productions after just having that initial demo that shows a part of the vision. But again, it comes back to having something that is at least partly ready, right? And uh, it also comes down to individual publishers. You know, some publishers will, will take, I guess there, that might be a question later, but you know, they might take IP, they might have other clauses that you don't want to uh, work around. So yeah, I mean, don't don't feel scared. I think in general, I think you agree, Jay, that if you're early, don't feel afraid to at least send it out to a few people and get some feedback. Yeah, I mean, it's worst case scenario, you're going to start building a, yeah. a relationship with that company. But I mean, the hard truth of this, too, is that you need to have and or develop a little bit of thick skin before you start going it because yes. you're going to get feedback you don't like. You're going to get ignored, you know, by a vast majority of the publishers either intentionally or because they simply had so much stuff coming in that they haven't had a chance to look at it. And, you know, keep in mind, everybody sends their game to Devolver. That's, I don't know how many times I have been at a conference and, you know, asked the teams, like, how many companies have you reached out to? And they're like, well, we only really want to work with one publisher. And I'm like, yes, yeah, Devolver, isn't it? Like, how did you know? Because that's what everybody wants to do. So, you know, you've got to pare that list down, but just be ready. You're going to get feedback you don't like, or you're going to get like crickets. And, but just keep plugging away. It's a, it's a persistence and determination type thing as much as it's anything else. All right. So I'm trying to skip through some of these that we've already got. Oh, this is a good one. Mm -hmm. What data about your team or game is valued the most by investors or publishers? Uh, well, let's, let's start with the quote unquote negative one first, obviously, you know, your, your team background that we just talked about. But of course, we understand, especially people like GTR, because we work with primarily studios who, who have no backgrounds. But no matter what, whatever you did in your past, whoever you worked for in the past is always the most important data point. And how well those games did when they launched, how well you know the art was perceived, how well the community perceived it. All of these data points are always the most important thing. Now, let's assume that you don't have that, right? At least for us, what we when we look at a demo, we compare it to the pitch deck and we try to imagine, okay, this is what you told us. You said that you're going to do these five things. And in the demo, you're showing us two of these things. So when we go into our follow-up call, we're going to ask you specifically where you think you're placed with the other three mechanics that you're waiting on and, and how far away you are from being ready. Because if we believe that you were able to complete the first two in the same way that you pitched it and perceived it, then we have an additional kind of data point to de-risk again. So it really comes down to what are you telling us and what are you showing us? So if we have nothing to bite into, that's what I meant in the earlier question, it's very hard for us to, to make a decision very early. So yeah, again, what are you telling us? What can we show? That for us is the most important data point. Some kind of extra pointers or you know extra uh, or good things, so to speak, is when you actually know what you're talking about. And that, that might sound weird, but for example, <laughs> we read your pitch deck and the budget is $2 million and we're either 
That's way too much money or way too little money. The things that you guys are talking about and showing in the pitch deck often do not add up in the budget slide and it's completely out of proportions. And we will have to go in and ask certain questions about how you came up with it. And then instantly we'll see certain red flags. Like again, you just Googled how to make this game and you put in a random number that you wanted. So it's better to be honest, you know, like when you're honest in your pitch that, oh, we're not certain about A and we're not certain about B, but we're good at C. That is a very valuable thing, like honesty and truth, because ultimately, if we're going to be investing in you and you're eventually going to work with a publisher, you're going to need to deliver what you're saying. So coming in and, you know, sparking all these crazy numbers or using my favorite slide, Jay, which is the the gaming market is 300 plus billion dollars and we're going to target every male person in the world, 18 to 35, and we're just going to hit them all. Yeah, no, that's that's not how things work. So I, I love when I see a slide where we understand who did you intend to make this game for? When you first came up with the idea, did you have a specific culture in mind, a specific age group, a specific you know competitor genre where you think you're going to be able to catch them? And why are they going to buy your game? So if you're making a game very similar to Hades, it's probably not going to be, you know, quote, like better, but you're doing something interesting that makes the same audience want to buy it. If you're just doing a smaller copy that is similar mechanics and you know has similar history, doesn't mean you're going to sell. You know, we want to know that what are the few pointers that are going to make you different from Hades in, in this particular case that will make people buy it. So we love when we have a good answer to these couple of questions, I think. Um, and I guess from an investor's point of view, the way that you've structured your company. So what's your cap table like? How many loans have you taken out? How did you structure your contracts? And in case you did take out loans, what are that, that paperwork like? Do you have any other kind of debts? You know, all the background of your company, that is also very, very important to us and shows us how you know much of an entrepreneur you are. Now, again, I'm kind of counter arguing myself now because eight out of 10 of the companies we invested to might not exactly know all of these <laughs> uh, answers, but at least we can see a, a, a certain point. Uh, my, my cap table is oak. It's got a nice like live wood edge on the side of it. It's, it's very, it's, it's very pretty. All right. So I'm going to follow up with this with, with two sto two quick stories about pitches that I got at Gamescom. One was a younger developer, newer, I don't mean like a kid. I mean, like just newer in the industry, you know, but, and they were used to pitching investors. And unfortunately they had me booked at like the end of the day and I was tired and I had everything else going on. And I'm a fourth slide explaining the mobile game market and the revenue in it. I finally just like tapped the guy on the shoulder and I was like, I know all this part. Let's just get to the actual game and, and, and what you need. He's like, Oh, so you have to be careful when you're pitching especially if you're pitching to publishers versus investors. Yes, there is a possibility that you're going to have an investor that doesn't understand the nuances and the, and the revenue in a mobile game market, but most publishers are, or they're not going to be there. So it's good to put it in the deck. So you show them that you know this, but don't like focus on it. The other was a, another new developer that was being pitched by the community manager. And it was honest to God, one of the best pitches. And, and I told her this, I was like, I've been doing this 25 years. And you know, this is one of the best pitches. The only thing I started grinning and she's like, what are you grinning? I said, I, there's one slide that I want to see if you have in this deck. And if you do, you've just nailed every bit of it. She didn't have it. 
but it's one that I rarely see anyway. And that's the marketing personas for, you know, your target audience. So yes. you know that that team has gone through and they said, we really, we know our market. This is it. Yep. But it, it's just, you have to really, and there is a difference between a pitch take for an investor and a pitch take for a publisher. Not a lot, but there is a little bit of difference in there. Um, but yeah, I did feel bad about that, that one team. I was like, dude. I, I kind of think I know who it is <laughs> because we also had a similar, but anyway, yeah, no, let's, we can't talk about that here anyway, but that's, that's interesting. <laughs> all right. So, um, all right. So we got that one done. Um, how should an indie team evaluate a publisher or an investor that they are considering working with? That's a great question. And maybe I should add a bit more context about, you know, why uh, I'm qualified to answer some of these questions uh, since some of you might not have you know, heard about us before. So again, I mentioned briefly in the beginning what Global Top Round does. We're, we're an investor, but we're very different from other investors. So once we become a shareholder in your company, so we invest equity in the studio, we don't invest project finance currently. Um, we actually become your business partner side by side, basically helping you revamp everything, your pitch deck or in an IR deck if you're raising money. Uh, we also help you with milestone planning, you know, building up the company, coaching and the whole thing. So we're we're side by side with you from beginning till theoretically the eventual exit. And in the last you know, two years, we've closed over twenty four million dollars worth of deals, which is mostly publishing uh, publisher money. But we also assist in fundraising. I'm currently doing three equity raises, and that's basically for being part of the studio. So just so you don't think I'm talking out of my ass here, we, we do this for a living, basically, for all of our studios. Currently, we have a deal flow of, I believe, Jan is pitching 14 studios, I think, uh, that we're pitching to publishers and investors. So it's something we love doing, and it's something we're going to keep doing. And, you know, Jay is coming to our event uh, in November. So, yeah, he'll see it all again. But... Um, did you want to say something? Right, yeah, yeah. What I'm now calling my world tour of November being is that I'm going from Mexico to Sweden to Madrid. So yeah, I'm, I'm just not getting over on your side of the world, but most of North America and Europe, I will be at least flying over. No, no um, I'll bring you to Asia eventually. That one business class. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So this is this is a wonderful question. Well, I, I think we forgot to answer the previous question. Did I we? Just threw in what the, was the previous yeah, question? I, I, I just threw in the whole. The, like, okay, you know, sorry. This sorry. is why we're qualified. There we go. <laughs> yes. Sorry. So, how should you evaluate them? Great question. And this is something that developers forget about all the time. So, you believe that you're the one that needs to beg for money, and you believe you're the one at a disadvantage when you talk to a publisher or an investor. The reality is, if anybody wants to give you money, it's because they think they can make money off of you. So if they want to give you a term sheet or a contract, it's because they believe they can take you and your game and make money off it. Otherwise, they wouldn't give you the term sheet or the publishing deal. So there is a lot of you know negotiation power that you have and that most often developers don't think that they have. And that's, again, why it's great to have a partner like us or Jay or anybody else on board. I always highly recommend you find an external third party that can help you, whether it's legal or an advisor or whatever, please find help. Don't do publishing contracts on your own. Then you're going to be one of those Reddit threads that, you know, whine and talk about how the publisher screwed you over. But 80% of the time it's because the developer signed the template that was sent over. That's the sad reality. Now let me actually answer the question. So how should you evaluate them? What we do in our process is, of course, if you're a GTR studio, 
we already have a set list of publishers that we have vetted before and we know what they do and we know what they're looking for. But let's assume it's a new company that we haven't worked with yet. We set up an individual due diligence call with every department that would theoretically work on the game. So we start off by asking, okay, so if you guys sign us, which are the 5, 10, 20 people that are going to work on the game? What departments are they in? How is the con contact going to work? Is it one meeting a week? Is it one every day? Like, how does your process work when you're working with the publisher and the team? And then we do this on every single department. So for the marketing team, we'll ask them, you know, where are you going to be spending the money? How much is going to influencers, for example? If we're a game that needs influencer marketing, what do you think the branding is? What do you think the keywords are? How are we going to attract PR? So we're trying to get into the brain of how they're going to spend the money that they're eventually recouping. From the production side, of course, we want to understand how their procedures are, what documentation we're you know, expected to deliver, what we need to do on their behalf, and so forth and so forth. And we also want to know if we have issues with the contract or we need to make amendments, who is our you know, point, of, uh, point of contact? Is it the biz dev person? Is it my producer? So we run this by every department till the developer feels safe. So we have, we've actually had cases where the developer saw the contract, wanted to sign it, and then went through this due diligence with the publisher and changed their mind because they didn't feel comfortable anymore. And that is very, very important. Yes, money is cool, but it's not cool to take money from somebody that you don't think you're going to want to work with eventually. So always do due diligence on the publisher. If they want to give you something, do these calls with everybody you're going to work with. Understand them. Ask any question you want. In my opinion, there are no stupid questions. And if they don't want to answer it, they're probably hiding something. They're always going to be honest with you. It, it is extremely important to understand that you can walk away. I mean, that's, yes. and you should in many situations, depending on what you get from the publisher, the investor or whatever, but don't go in and sign a bunch of contracts that are going to put you in trouble day one. Um, yeah. And I know it's hard, you know, somebody wants to give you money. But but let me let me give you a story from the GTR portfolio because this is a uh, this is a great example. We had this um, amazing game called Strayblade, which is uh, now published by by Five Hundred Five uh, Five Hundred Five Games. Uh, we're launching somewhere uh, sometime next year. And when they came to us, they were in that exact position. They had an offer on the table for a very decent amount of money, and you know they came to us asking, "Well, why do we need you, GTR?" And after a lot of Pontus charm. Uh, I was able to convince Leonard to actually fly out to Korea, where we had our conference that year, and actually convince him to go there, listen to us, sit down and talk. And ultimately, I told him this. I'm not going to legally tell you that I can get you a better deal in two weeks, but I'm going to get you a better deal in two weeks. And two weeks later, we had upped the amount of money from the publisher by $200,000. And ultimately, we ended up signing a five times higher budget than the initial one that he had on the table before he signed with GTR. Now, this is a very weird case because the reason it was five times higher was he was always pitching the version of the game that he thought he could get money for, not yes. the game he wanted to make. So we didn't find that out until, you know, just before we gave him the money. He was like, well, my initial plan was actually this much money, but everybody told me it was too much. And I was like, it's not too much. Like, And we dug into all these documentations. We listened to his smaller, medium, and the actual game he wanted to make. And then we pitched the actual game he wanted to make. And we got signed with the actual game he wanted to make. So like Jay said, you can walk away and find the right partner. That's another Gamescom meeting that I had. Developers <laughs> sat down, pitched me a game. The budget, I could just do napkin math and know that it was not 
enough even to do what they wanted to do. And I'm like, where did this budget number come from? And they were like, well, our advisor said we should do this because we're a new studio and we can't ask yeah. for much more than that. And I said, bullshit. It, that, there, is no, there is no wall that says if you've never published a game, if you've never released a game, you can only ask for X amount of money. You can ask for as much as you want. Now, you may not get it, but don't go in and hamstring yourself day one because what's going to happen is they're going to, if you get a, a deal signed, you're going to get about halfway, three quarters of the way through development and then have to turn around and look at the publisher and go, well, we don't have enough money to finish the game. So yeah. don't buy into all of that. I can only ask for X amount because I'm a new studio or an unproven studio or it's a visual novel or whatever the hell reason it is. It's, it, it's not true. And you're going to end up causing more problems down the line if you don't do it. Every single publisher and investor out there knows if you pitch them the game you want to make and they like it, but they can't afford it or don't want to spend that much. We all know we can go back to you and say, okay, look, I know you need $6 million, but what could you do if we gave you two? Yep. It can. Mm -hmm. So don't go in and, and pitch some half-assed version of the game that you want to make just because you don't think somebody's going to give you the money. Pitch the game you want to make and then go from there. Sorry. And sometimes it can go the other way around as well. We had a case where we negotiated with a publisher for way too long, and I'm not going to say the amount of months because then everybody will know which game it is. But um, we we pitched a game we wanted to make to, to this particular AAA publisher. And uh, after many, many months of negotiation, ultimately, you know, they came back and said, can you make it for four times the budget? <laughs> so we were like, what? <laughs> yeah, but, but sometimes you can't. That's the thing. It's like exactly those are those are rare happenings, but they do yes. happen. But yeah, sometimes yeah. you're like, okay, well, I can send you an invoice for another four million, but this is no, but that was the great do. thing with that particular studio. They did have that crazy nobody's ever gonna sign plan. So within yeah. two weeks, you know, we had the whole product breakdown and we've been working on it now for over one and a half year. So yeah, it, it can go both ways. And the point is that I think ultimately they asked us for that because we pitched the game we wanted to make. We had all the documentation ready for it with a number. And then they looked at it and be like, well, we can add, you know, a certain amount of features, we can upscale it, you know. And yeah, here we are. And we're launching sometimes in the future. <laughs> sometime in the future. Nice one. Uh, yeah. Keep keep yourself safe there. All right. Yeah. I want to get to Joker's question because it is a really, really good question. Um when you're going to investors that want equity or royalties, finding out how much is in the contract, how can you predict how much your company is going to be worth down the road when you're just getting started? So how do yeah, you know I mean, how to split that equity? Equity or royalties is a very different thing. So it's kind of a two-phased question, right? But let me like, so, so on the equity side, what we're I think it's more for... about the equities though, the equity okay. side. Yeah. Okay, so if it's equity, simple question, right? So what, what is GTR looking for, right? We have a, this is a theoretical one because we, we don't really have a rule, but let's say that we have a five to seven year period where we eventually want to exit your company. So what we're looking at is the amount we're putting in now and how much you're valued at now, five to seven years later, you're going to be valued more and there needs to be a certain type of exit. So when we start talking to you guys, we usually ask, well, in the future, what do you want? Do you want to be acquired? Do you want an IPO? 
Do you want to sell off the IP? Whatever. And there are many ways for an investor to uh, to exit. You know, maybe even the studio will buy back the shares from us. So there are tons of different ways an investor can exit. So what we look at is what is the quality of your product? How much money can that game make? And then most importantly, can you make a better one after that and a better one after that? Because when we invest in a studio, we're, we're not you know crazy and, oh, yeah, your first game is going to make $50 million. That's not how it works. You know, We're like, you have a decent demo or a vertical slice or whatever stage you're at. We believe this game can do well. But what we do know is that once you've launched this, whether it's a success or a failure, you will have learned a lot. And then your next game is going to be even better. And a great example, again, is Leonard from 505, uh, 505 Games, from Point Blank Games. <laughs> uh, you know, since they started working on Stray Blade with 505, they've improved so much as a team that if they make a Stray Blade 2 or whatever happens later on, they are going to make even better products. And 505 knows that as their publisher. The studio knows that because they've grown so much. They've learned so much working with the publisher that they've also learned the publishers in and out, right? Because they've been working with them, learning their ways that they're just going to make better products. So for us as an investor, Stray Blade is a pretty freaking cool game. And I do expect it to sell really well. But whether it does or doesn't, they will still make a better product after that and a better product after that. So if we believe that, we believe that eventually our equity is going to be worth more money. It's not as easy as putting a profit and loss and be like, okay, five years from now, Point Blank Games will be worth 100 million. We don't know that because it purely, if Stray Blade 1 does well, they have a lot of money to invest in the next game, and then that game will be even bigger. But if the game doesn't do that well, they might have to downscale and do a smaller product and then move up. So that's why we do a lot of investments, of course, to, to de-risk because we need to put, well, well, what's the English word? Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Right. Yes. So we don't want to do that. We want to have a lot of studios with a lot of creative and a lot of talent and see where that takes us. And we want to support all studios equally and hopefully as many of them as possible survive and make better products, which ultimately will, will result in a return of investment for us. But yes, for an investor acquisition, you know, a merger or an IPO or buying back to shares are usually the way we make our money in the end. And that requires, of course, you to be a successful company. And keep in mind, too, investors and small to mid-sized publishers, and I'm, publishers that are dropping 15, 20 games a year, this does not apply to. But no. small to mid-sized publishers and investors are equally as invested in your game as you are. Yes. So, I, you know, I get a lot of developers coming to me and it's like, well, how do we know this publisher is going to do a good job? It's like, well, they only publish four games a year. So they can't afford to have one flop. You know, they've got to make sure it's the best it can be from their side too. So you got to have some, you know, inherent trust in there. Yeah, and jumping back to the publisher due diligence questions, right? That's one question you should ask. How many games are you launching this year? Like, how do I know that you're going to put all your effort in, in my game, right? And like you said, they are putting money in you. And if the game doesn't sell, they're not going to make money back. I mean... That's how it works, right? It's all a money game in the end. We're all in the entertainment industry, creating businesses. Amazing that there's like your business aspect of this. Somebody <laughs> should do a podcast based right. on this. Um, all right. So next question coming in. Do publishers generally have opinions on Steam Early Access and Steam Fest? And is it a positive to have used these tools before signing a publisher who's going to do your marketing? Or is that a negative? Yeah, so I have mixed opinions about this. Um, 
let me let me put it uh, in, the, in the most negative outcome first. So <clears throat> if you launch an early access and you don't sell, your game's dead when it comes to a publisher. You're not going to be able to sign a publisher. And I've had cases like this recently where they just haven't sold enough that the publisher believes they can relaunch the game at full launch and make their money back. It's not worth the risk for them. So going out in early access early and not succeeding is basically going to kill your ideas of getting a publisher on board with a lot of financing. Of course, there are publishers out there who can just do your distribution, try to get platform deals. But I'm talking about a publisher putting in capital to make your game better. I honestly thought it, that we had a case like this recently, and I thought I could convince publishers to take the game because I think it's a very good game. I was wrong. So now I'm even more convinced that that argument is uh, is true. Now, if your early access is very successful, uh, very successful doesn't mean a million copies, right? It means that you're actually selling and you're actually taking that money and developing the game for the better. It is still possible. But I think we did like a kind of a questionnaire with some of our publishers recently. And generally, 80% prefers that you have not launched yet, or if, if not even higher. So most of them prefer that, you know, they start the Steam page, they launch your game, and they get it out there. But it really is case by case. I'm sure Jay has a similar experience because it's also just a matter of being in the right place at the right time. Sometimes a publisher just loves your game and don't give a shit. They're like, oh, Steam page? Blah. Early access? Blah. Give me your game. You know, they, they just love it. And um, that's just a matter of luck, I think. Right place at the right time. So I'll say from our research, that number yeah. is a little closer to 50-50. But huh? the okay. giant asterisk in that is whether or not you are actually selling the game. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, if you're going in there and you just have your Steam page up and a wish list, then nine times out of ten, you're fine. That's not what yeah. they're worried about. You know, there are publishers that are going to say, "Oh no, you, you've said anything, and therefore we can't control them." But those are a small minority. But it's when you start selling the game on Steam that, yes. That, at that point, that number does jump up to 70, 80 some percent. But just yeah. having it on Steam, because we get a ton of publishers that their first question is, okay, how many wish lists does it have? You know, that's what they want to know first and foremost, which is also, you know, a sticky situation for a lot of developers. And I've been in green light meetings with some of the publishers that we scout for, and they're like, well, this game's only got like 700 wish lists and i'm like yes because it's an indie team with like six people on it none of them know how to do marketing and they're just doing what they think they need to do that's why they need a fucking publisher oh yeah <laughs> so in many cases it's one of those that it's like you're damned yeah. if you do you're damned if you don't but if you want to do it you're better off on steam fest or Wishlist early access, whatever. If you're not selling it, you're just yep. grabbing wishlists. It's a dangerous game to launch and start selling if you if you don't have any publisher and you want to get one. Yes, I never recommend that. Yep. All right. Did we answer the question? Yes, we did. Yes. See? Look, at, look, how, look how good we're doing without Dan. We can do this. <laughs> it's so funny for everybody watching. Like normally, you know, in the in the past podcast, we're here. We. Uh, we just kind of ramble off on a lot of different topics about the game industry, but today's Q and A session is pretty good. Well, yeah, yeah, because and we're not even we're forty five minutes into the show. We're not even halfway through the questions here. So, oh god, 
<laughs> we said 2 a.m., right? So uh, You might want to grab that scotch. So um, <laughs> what are the best things you've seen in an indie pitch to publishers and investors, and what is the worst thing you've seen? Best thing I've seen? Um, it's a really tough one because, obviously, I'm an investor, but we also prepare decks for publishers, so I guess I can answer both of them. Um, so on the investor side, a, a really – good thing for us to see is when a founder has bootstrapped their way to a demo or a vertical, vertical slice. Again, taking their own savings, you know, use their money to build something and taking it to a point where it wants to be signed and still retaining 100% equity, still having like, you know, everything clean on the documentation side. And now they're looking for money. Now they're looking for partners because they're ready to scale up. And maybe eventually if they find the money, leave their job and do this full time. That's something that, you know, is really interesting to me as an investor, watching them have this safe route all the way to the point where they're like, all right, time to focus and make this into a company that really shows entrepreneurship. But again, the reality is most developers aren't really there yet. So my favorite slide as an investor is why do you want to work with me? Why do you want to work with Max and Jan and the rest of our team? So you actually doing research on us, and this goes to the publisher part of this question as well. Why do you want to work with us in particular? So if your answer is that you need help in scaling your company, you need help in finding publishers, finding capital, whether it's angels or VC, and you want to grow into a fruitful startup, and you type that in, that shows that you've clearly done research on GTR, I love that. That's the best thing for us. It's not the best thing for any investor, maybe, but for us, this, this is the number one thing. You doing your research as to why you need us as your partner. Now, on the pitch to publishers, honestly, the, the easiest and, and best documentation that, that we really love is when you have these beautiful spreadsheets with each feature, how many hours it takes, like full breakdown of everything that's going on within the game and a history of it so we can see that you completed it in the past. This is very rare, but we have one of our studios in our company called uh, Viral Studios, which is a Spanish studio, which is absolutely incredible. And when they pitched us and they sent us you know, the due diligence document, we were like, okay, they know clearly <laughs> what they're doing. Like everything was broken down to the point where I'm like, it's even a little bit too much. And then, you know, what, once we gave them our money, they delivered on each milestone as well. So that was beautiful to see. Like they showed us like the past work. And obviously I think this goes without saying they used to do outsource work and consulting gigs. So that's why they were very used to this type of product management. And this was amazing. And why is this important to a publisher pitch or potentially an investor pitch? Because again, de-risking. Us seeing your history of what you did in the past six months with a limited budget. If you tell us, let me say this. If you send us a demo on email and you type clearly, we did this with $10,000 and 200 hours of sweat equity. I know what to expect, right? This, this is like very clear to me. You didn't have a lot of money. You did your best and you tried. And we're going to judge you that way. If it says half a million dollars and you're not living up to anything in your pitch deck, that's a really big you know, red flag. So having that history like Viral Studios had, showing how much money it costs to bring them to this stage and how much the new money from us and the publisher, and they ended up signing with uh, with Handy Games, we just announced it. Uh, what we were able to see there is a perfect pitch for me. Everything clear. And they also had you know the whole team breakdown, the whole company, like everything just kind of checked out. And at the end of the day, us as GTR, we look at the game primarily, like uh, when we do our initial valuation. So those documentation really helped. I love that stuff. But you, Jay, what do you think? The, it, it, obviously, the more <laughs> detail in there, the better. But it has to be accurate. And one of the things that yes. immediately red flags me when I'm being pitched a game 
is we get a studio and it's typically newer studios that do this for a reason. They're like, okay, this is the game we're going to make. It's going to take us another three years to get it done. And we need $75,000 and we're in London. And I'm like, none of that adds up. I'm like, are you figuring paying yourself in this? Oh no, that's just for the contractors. Like, no, 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 no. Are you also doing this full time? Well, we have other jobs. No, 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 no. Your budget needs to break down the total cost, paying yourself a livable salary, working on it full time. No publisher or investor in the world is going to give you money to work on game part time while you have another job. Figure out how much it's really going to cost and put that in there. And again, going back to the earlier point, don't be intimidated by the fact that you can only ask for X amount because you're a new team. You're going to raise. That's our good. You're going to raise just as many red flags with with me, with Pontus, and everybody else asking for too little as you are asking for too much. And I want to throw that in on the budget in particular. Another red flag there, which is one of the absolute worst things I've ever seen, is watching a Malaysian team uh, throw in a budget where everybody had an average salary of $8,000. And there might be Americans watching this thinking like, well, I mean, that's not insanely crazy. Well, the average salary for a game developer in Malaysia is fifteen hundred bucks a month. So they were basically paying themselves four, like almost four and a half times as much, in a completely new and fresh indie team. So they were basically maybe hoping that an American publisher would look at this being like, "Oh yeah, this seems normal," and then they would just all be paid like gods over there. And the point I'm saying here is that any publisher or investor worth a damn knows the local wages and they know what you're supposed to be paid, which digs into Jay's thing as well. We know how much you are supposed to be paid, meaning don't undercut yourself as well. Because if you're not happy and if you're not you know, in a good mental state, you can't pay your rent, you're also not going to make a good game. So it's all, it goes both ways where put in the amount you're supposed to be paid, don't overdo it and don't underdo it. Because that's whenever I see like, you know, especially since I'm based here in Southeast Asia and I see ridiculous salaries here, I'm like, guys, I mean. We have so many investments here. I have their whole breakdown for the last four see, years. I know what they you're, cost. <laughs> you're an anomaly in that. And, and, you know, going back to my days as an agent years and years and years ago, we totally did that, like, all the time. Because a lot of times, especially back then, when you didn't have nearly as many, I'm, I'm talking 10, 15, 20 years ago, okay. you didn't have nearly as much communication. You know, it wasn't very people have to do a little bit of research to go, okay, so what does it, what's the developer making in, in you know, yep. the Philippines or wherever it may be, but everybody's, you know, in their head, they say, Oh, this, you know, the fact that this number hasn't changed in 20 years tells you it's out of date, but default reaction is 10,000 per person per month. That's like what everybody goes to. And yes, we would absolutely have teams in you know countries that didn't have and we would put it in there because a lot of those american and european publishers would be like yeah this totally makes sense now (laughs) you can't really do that anymore but the reason i was sitting here laughing is because we've done that and i have landed those deals but no remorse huh (laughs) years back (laughs) all right um Let's see here. We got more questions coming in, and I'm just trying to scoot through as many as possible. Um, Another good one here. How much emphasis to put on multi-game strategy, long-term studio plan when you're pitching to publishers and or other types of investors? 
I mean, the investor part should be pretty obvious. Hell yes. I mean, this is one of the most important things. Like Jay mentioned earlier in, in the uh, in the call about the difference between an investor and a publisher deck. And this is an exact, you know, like question that we always want in the deck. So if you're pitching an investor, again, we're an exception because, you know, we're early stage, blah, blah, blah. But if you're pitching a venture capital or somebody is putting in a lot of money into your company, we need to know what you're planning long term. Do you want to build the same kind of genres? Do you want to build the same kind of mechanics in your future games? Do you want to do a multi-game strategy uh, where you build like four games in the same IP? Or do you want to build four different types of IPs? Like what kind of studio do you want to be? And this is like, I think one of the first questions in our due diligence questionnaire that we do with all of our studios is like, who do you want to become? Because it might sound cool to do an FPS and then do an RPG and then do a sport game, but that doesn't allow your team to become experts in a certain genre or a certain way of working which is a small red flag but it's still acceptable i mean if you want to make multiple games that's great so most of the teams that we're working with well I, actually i would say 100 uh, really that we invest in initially only have one game but the moment we're starting to pick up some some speed you know we're raising a little bit of angel money we close the publisher we instantly start the demo of the second game why because we don't know you know if uh, the publisher wants to make a sequel with us we don't know if they want to continue working with, uh, with us long term. And we don't know if the game's going to be successful. So if we're putting in all of the effort in, in making you know, Pontus 2 and then Pontus 1 goes to absolute crap, what are we going to do then? You know, We don't have anything anymore. So a good strategy when it comes to demos is that you start working on the second demo or prototype six to nine months before the launch of your first game if you have the resources to do so. And you start building the documentation. You start preparing. So three to six months before you launch, you're already pitching this to your current publisher if they have rights of first refusal, which 90% of the publishers do, or a different publisher if it doesn't fit them or if you don't have that uh, clause in your contract. So yes, always do multi-game strategies. I think that is very, very crucial. Even if you want to build, like, if, even if you're an IP studio and you want to build the same game forever, you should do the exact same thing. You still want to be prepared if your genre in this IP won't work out and you want to build a different type of game in that same IP. So a lot of emphasis for an investor. From a publisher, I, I would say personal opinion now, and I'm not a publisher, of course. Um, we like to tell the publisher when we pitch them what opportunities there exist within the IP. So the studios were, were very IP heavy. Uh, I'll take Warden's Rising, for example. You guys can Google that if you want to. So Brazilian studio. Uh, he has plans on making many things in the IP, and he has a whole roadmap for the investor deck where he talks about the different applications. And when we pitch Warden Risings to, uh, to publishers, we tell them about the opportunities we want to do. We want to keep building the world, but we also want to build side games, and hopefully we want to work with the same publisher doing so. And uh, for the uh, investors, we also tell them, okay, if the first game fails, this is the backup plan, this is what we're going to do then. So I, I always like to have something in there. You can tell us about some small ideas you have, or if you have DLC plans, or you have live ops plans, or again, two options. Game is successful, we do A. Game is not successful, we do B. You don't need to put you know a crazy emphasis on the publisher side, maybe. I prefer it, but maybe you should ask a publisher that question. Or maybe I should ask Jan, he used to be a publisher. Indie Game Business has one of the longest running digital event series in the gaming industry with hundreds of publishers, investors, developers, and tech companies to meet with. 
All the sessions are always free to watch forever, and you can get a free pass to receive all the slide decks from all the speakers. The tickets for meetings start just at $50. Go to IndieGame.Business and use the code IGBPODCAST to get 20% off your ticket. you can so seamlessly and casually name drop your clients and projects into any conversation that is just fascinating very well done <laughs> well, well thank you I, guess. <laughs> I have nothing to add to that i mean because yeah it's like well i, I take that back i do have something to add you can't get too far ahead of yourself though it's like, yeah. yes, you want to show this plan, but I also talk to developers who are still mid-development, nowhere near launch on their first title, and they're already like, okay, so we're going to start pitching the next one. And I'm like, no, you've never released yeah. anything. You need to make sure this first project gets off the ground and goes from there before you spend too much, unless you've got a consultant or an agent or somebody else to do the work. Because chances are with a small team any time you spend trying to pitch game two is going to be time you're taking out a development of game one and that's going to end up hurting you in the end um yes, all right. i have two two things to add there because you you brought up a a good point that if you decide to do that second game in a strategy that i mentioned of course i'm only talking about free time that you have available which is why i mentioned the word resources because if the publisher notices you're spending time on something else then they're going to lose faith in the actual project that you're building. And that's, of course, not what you want at all. So it's important that, you know, you're clearly communicating with the publisher your plans very early, whether they have rights over first refusals or not, and you're explaining to them that this is not going to take away from the main project. And we're actually doing this with three studios right now. So this is quite common for us to do. Um, and now I forgot the second thing. Um, damn it. Don't worry about it. Well, we'll have more. Next. <laughs> all right. All right. Another good one. How do you handle weaknesses that you've identified beforehand when pitching, i.e. I suck at recruiting? Should I mention that at all or leave it for later conversations? That's a good question. And uh, again, I think it's important to be very transparent, especially with the investors, because when we do interviews uh, with you and your employees, we're going to find out anyway. So it's better you just tell us up front that like, you know, what we need to know. And uh this is going to be one of the most crucial factors because we're going to work with you as the founding team or you individually, if you're one founder, to eventually build a company. And if we can't identify your weaknesses, how are we supposed to actually help you? So if you're bad at recruiting, perhaps we can actually help you with that. I personally have hired over 200 people in my life. I would consider myself okay at it. So in this particular case, working with GTR, perhaps I could be the person to help you going through the process. And I've also done a lot of mistakes with hiring because nobody's perfect. So I, it's not like I'm perfect and hopefully my experience can help you become better at recruiting or option two is that you know you simply have to use recruitment agencies and advisors to try to help you find the people and that brings me to the publisher perspective here if you're talking to a publisher be very upfront about what roles you have access to and what you don't and perhaps they actually have good people that they can help you recruit or in their network or with their other studios potentially and that might be a way to fill in the slots so 100%, I think recruiting in particular is extremely important. 
And actually, I want to use another example here, just because Jay gave me such nice feedback, you know, about remembering my clients. You're going to name drop another one, aren't you? <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> so there was a studio called uh, Sager Entertainment, an American studio, actually, that uh, that we signed recently. And basically, when we, when we did a due diligence with him, we identified this issue. Not that he was uh, weak at recruiting, but that he was lacking a certain amount of uh, expertise within the company. So when we looked at the pitch deck, there were a couple of red flags that Jay and I have already brought up. And it wasn't because he was, you know, uh, not truthful. It's because he didn't know. So we just asked him straight up, like, you don't really know this particular thing, right? And he was very, very open about it. So what we told him was, you need a co-founder. You need partners that can help fill in these other slots. And, you know, we recommend you do this first. And then maybe you can come back. And two weeks later, he had this, like, idea and plan and other people getting involved. And ultimately, you know, we ended up investing in him. So him being truthful allowed us to give him advice that he immediately took action on and then became a better studio almost instantly. And right now, actually, we are looking for we're helping him with recruiting in general for because we're hopefully signing a large deal soon. It's in progress. All right, so, but that we'll brings see. up a question that I have because I have teams asking me this frequently and I legitimately have no idea. How do you go find a co-founder i mean do you like start cold calling on linkedin what i mean how do you even start doing that great question and uh man i, I need we need to start recording our sessions in, in germany because so many of these questions are right there you know just throw them up on a gtr website no i, I actually had a 15-minute talk on finding a co-founder but to make it short um what i would say that you should do is that write a, like a kind of a mind map or a list uh about yourself and there is a website called EliteGameDevelopers.com by Joachim Akron. And he has a specific template about founder cap tables and how to identify how to give co-founders equity based on their expertise. I don't fully agree with his template, but I think it's an amazing start for a new founder in Indy. So I recommend going there and finding that table. And that also identifies different strengths in different founders. So if you take his list as an example, because that's an easy way to get started and maybe build on it a bit, write down all the things you're good at, write down all the things that you're lacking. Now, and most importantly, remember the, the number one quality about a co-founder is having a ball plank to talk to, talk to, get feedback, negative and positive with he or she all the time. That's the most important thing that you can always have somebody giving you criticism and hopefully improving the product. But again, back. Um, so once you've identified all the weaknesses, that is the ideal founder, in my opinion, that you want to look for or the co-founder, sorry, because you want to find somebody that kind of uh, alleviates some of the things that you're worse at and can help improve it. And you want them to stick around for a long time. So if you have a co-founder, obviously they'll have equity in your company and they'll work with you for a very long time. And that's, of course, a bit closer to you than just an employee. Now, where do you find them? Actually, one quick thing there. If you do bring on a co-founder, protect yourself with legal. Don't just give them the equity straight up. Make it vestible. And also make sure they get it, again, like vestible meaning over time. So make sure they get the equity maybe over one, two, three years until the first game is launched. That's a great way to protect yourself, but we're not here to discuss legal today. That's for another podcast. Jay, in four weeks? Or? Yeah, <laughs> no, really. You know, the next time no. we have a blank in the slate coming up and, and uh, exactly. I send you a message that says, hey, Pontus, what, what are you doing on Friday? Um, yeah, no, but so uh, finding them, sorry. <laughs> I, I, sorry, I talked too much, guys. So finding them, LinkedIn, yes, is the absolute best way, I think. You know, you look into the weaknesses that you have, you identify the role, could be a creative director, could be a COO. Like, you should notice that when you look at all the, you know, weaknesses that you've identified in yourself. 
because realistically you're the person who knows your own weaknesses the most. Then you go on LinkedIn and you look for companies, you go out on Twitter, you might even message, uh, you know, advisors or people like me or people like Jay and ask, oh, hey, do you know any producers looking for a gig? Maybe we do, maybe we don't. Uh, and there are lots of job boards out there that you can look at as well. But LinkedIn and Twitter, I think, are my two favorite things when it comes to finding co-founders for our studios. Yeah. Nice. See, now I know. Next time somebody asks, I'm just going to go say, go ask Pontus. There it is. <laughs> um, all right. So we're going to rewind here. If, folks, if you've got questions, yep. drop, drop them in chat. If you're watching, obviously, you can do that. If you're on Discord, drop it in the podcast questions, but I would much prefer you drop it here in chat. Can you explain the different ways that developers can go about getting funding? Okay, so... Um, well, let's, let's go beyond that, because we know what they are. I mean, so there, yes. there's the friends and family, there's the bigger investment, there's publishers, that sort of stuff. So let's go... Angel investment, et cetera. Yes. Where does one start... And are which events are worth going to to find these things? Okay, so obviously with the again your own pocket savings, number one. Number two, friends and family. Go to them with a business prospect, you know, like at least some you know resemblance of a business plan and show them what you're planning and when eventually they could get their money back. A great way is that they get their money back when you eventually sign a publisher or when you find an investor. And of course, that's something you need to tell us if that that is your plan but that, that is a good way to to find that money so you go to them you ask them you see if they're interested and you try to close it now the number one most important things for those of you uh, lucky enough to live in countries with grants grants are king like they are amazing most of them are non-recoupable they don't have that many terms you just have to deliver a prototype that you're going to build anyway malaysia is one of the best countries for this germany i think has the best grant system i would argue in the world right now because they have like 50 million euros a year to spend on grants, non-recoupable grants and no equity, no anything. It's, it's free money. It's quite crazy. Yes. So grants are amazing. And, you know, if you're open to relocation, sometimes even this is a bit strong, of course, but we had a studio of ours that moved from France to Canada specifically to set up a startup there and get access to the grant system and tax credits and stuff like that. And, you know, they were planning to move anyway. So that kind of worked out for them. So how do you get those grants? Well, first of all, obviously, you've got to go to the local events where, you know, that your government's hosting uh, for Sweden. You know, we have a company called Business Sweden that generally just you know takes care of BizDev. You can email them and figure out what kind of grants are available. There are local IGDAs. And then, of course, there are people living in the country advising these people. I think Jason De La Roca is still an advisor for mm -hmm. the Canadian government. So you could ask him potentially about grants. So. Grants, I think, is the most important way. Events, like local things you can find, IGDAs, advisors, and LinkedIn. You know, if you Google your local IGDA, you find the person in charge and you reach out on LinkedIn. That's a good way to get started to find the grant money. So, and, yeah. oh, wait, hold on, real quick, before yep. I lose my train of thought. All, most all of these grants, because they're coming from government money, they are public. So you yes. can see, you know, exactly who got it. And that is another wonderful way to go and ask questions is go and talk to the studios who have already gotten that grant. What did they do? How did they do it? What's the process? All that sort of stuff. I'm going to name drop again. I knew <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, I'm just going to get But an example is we did exactly what Jay said. So we, we just invested in a French studio and we have two previous French investments that have gotten grants. We actually just sent them to them. And that sped everything up, which made our life a lot easier because we obviously we're not 
helping them set up the grants locally because that's too much work. So yeah, we passed it to them and that was that was very easy. So that, that's a great point. If there are other studios, and again, they are public, you can use them for advice as well. I mean, it's a win-win for everybody. More jobs, more entertainment. So um, let's assume that you've done these initial steps, right? What other events should you go to? I think you don't want to be one of these teams that are traveling to every single event in the world. It's very expensive, both the flight and the hotel, and your time can probably be spent uh, spent more wisely. So I honestly recommend in the beginning to go to some of these more smaller to medium events where there isn't as many people because Gamescom and GDC, so many people, so many pitches, and the publishers and investors are so drained after these events that it's harder to get noticed and harder to get remembered unless you have an incredible, you know, outstanding pitch. So getting to these smaller to medium ones first, it, you get some practice in pitching to publishers. You get to network with the local industry. And if you have workshops locally, show up to them as well where you can meet people. So I would recommend those first and then set an event budget for your year. If you are not yet signed, how much money do you have to spend this year to pitch? Look at the top events, you know, ask around with your friends and just show up and look at the uh, the results, right? Are you getting positive feedback at this event from the publishers? Then maybe you want to keep pushing. This is kind of stale. It's not really leading anywhere. Then take a break. And please don't go to Gamescom and two weeks later go to the next event. You need to wait until you get feedback on your first pitch or you're not going to get anywhere. So generally, if you are don't have a lot of money, one event every two months is more than enough just so you actually have some lead time in between. But uh, I don't know. Do you want me to continue here? I think this is early enough, right? No, I mean, this is, you're dead on about not going. But the other thing is to keep in mind, understand the audience for the show. Yeah. But yes, there are publishers at PAX. And yes, there are scouts at PAX. But dollar for dollar, is that the best use of your money, yeah. given that PAX is primarily a B2C show versus and i agree and, and i've said this for years you're going to get more attention and a better access to publisher scouts investors going to things like nordic game conference the the casual connect series that used to exist years and years ago if you were in the casual space they were wonderful they weren't that big of an event everybody that mattered was there but yeah i mean i I had over 50, 60 games pitched to me in four days at Gamescom. And so smaller events, you'll the networking events in the evenings are much more laid back. Yes. I highly recommend starting there. If you're going to go to two big ones a year, do GDC and Gamescom. Um, yes. But yeah, all that shit gets really stupid expensive. Um, yeah, because all these parties as well, you know, that you guys think are a great idea. The thing is that after we've gotten 40, 60 pitches, we're not remembering you at the party anymore. But at the smaller events, we always remember you. I, I was at Big Festival the first time four years ago in Brazil, which is an incredible event. And not for maybe you indies listening, but for publishers and investors who have not yet been there, it's awesome. And what happened there was when I went, there was this smaller indie party hosted by, I think, a Brazilian company called Flux. Um that basically runs a small indie company. And that night I was pitched probably 11 studios at that party. Normally I don't like being pitched at a party, but it was nice. They were all super respectful. It was like five minutes casually walking up to me, telling me about my game. I remembered all 11 and I got 11 business cards and I reached out to all of them. And I think we ended up investing in one later on, but it's like events like this, again, smaller, 
we will remember you. We'll have more energy. Gamescom is just crazy. Oh, <laughs> a Brazilian question. <laughs> Sorry, you go ahead. Ask. <laughs> no, 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 no. Go ahead. You know, <laughs> since GTR yeah. works with a bunch of Brazilian studios, I'll bet it's because of the barbecue and that word that I know what that is, but I can't pronounce it. So yes. Are, and are you going to BGS? Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not going to to BGS, but yes, we we love. Well, I love Brazil. <laughs> Uh, Jan, who was just uh, who's our new head of publishers, was there with me this time as well, and he also loves it. And I mean, for me, right, it's one of these. Uh, well, I guess not everybody might be familiar, but Vietnam is currently the highest growing market in Southeast Asia. Well, I guess maybe India, but uh, Vietnam anyway has been a huge topic in the last couple of years. Is growing immensely fast. There is so much talent, and people are starting to outsource to Vietnam as well. And Brazil is the country in Latin America that I personally think has an insane amount of talent and most of the talent is gulped up by all the triple a companies and the large outsourcing studios and those people want to make their own games so we have a studio which is our best investment of all time so far performing called rogue snail uh, is the main game is being published by gearbox we launched one of our games with netflix two months ago <clears throat> we also have one game with kowloon knights which is our second title not the first one i need it <clears throat> and a first and a third title got 1 million downloads on Steam as well. So this, you know, this company has grown from two people when we invested to 55. And we've proceeded, I think, now with five total Brazilian investments. And it's just because there's just so much creativeness, so much talent. It's different. You know, the games aren't the same as in the West. The games aren't in this, uh, the same as in Asia. And I just think it's amazing. And if you have an interesting company, people will leave the large boys and girls and come to you. And that's exactly what happened with Big Moxie Games and Warden's Rising as well, where we grew from, I think we were 10 last year, and I think we're 38 now, and we're going to be even bigger next year. So, yes, Brazil, amazing market, great country, and of course, the barbecue is my absolute favorite. Actually, for you, Jay, I, I, I took out uh, some media and a couple of publishers to this five-star barbecue experience, you know, with every meat you can imagine with like wine and cocktails and everything that's like 20 bucks per person yeah but it, i mean you're talking ridiculous. to the guy from north carolina about barbecue and uh, we're very picky and well known for our barbecue so yeah, but, you know. it's dangerous but yeah hell, <laughs> i'm still gonna eat it yeah that's not a problem yeah, um I had a I had a segue in there and I forgot what it was after like the fourth company that you name dropped. I'm gonna get a ticker <laughs> next time and we're just I'm gonna sorry. Hey, you, you brought it up <laughs> every time you yes. Um is PAX West too big? Does something like Steam Next Fest have any sort of networking? No, Next Fest does not have networking. And I all right, so I will say so I've never been to any of the PAXs. I want to go, but I want to go as a fan. I don't want to go and work, which is impossible. But the networking part of, of Steam Next Fest that doesn't exist. And the other problem is it's like one, they do what three or four of those a year, and there are so many studios that are in them. There's I think we did an episode several months back on how to stand out at Steam Next Fest. It's it's very difficult. It's it's you know, for the very same reason we tell people don't launch your game during a major trade show if you're an indie team, because you're just going to get swallowed by everything else. And that's a lot of what Steam Next Fest is moving towards. It's more about indie games from publishers than it is indie games who are looking for publishers and, and that sort of stuff. 
Yeah, this question is purely for you. I've never been to any of the Paxos either, so. And I'll also say, you know, you should really look into digital events because they don't cost a lot, like the one that we have coming up in, in two weeks if you go over to IndieGame.Business. But, I mean, there's also a lot of resources online. Did you freeze just for me? Um, the chat seeing him frozen as well. I have no idea what's going on. Can you hear me? I hear you perfectly, actually, but your face is this perfect... <laughs> Well, you because you can see the booty on your on your hat. My monitors have completely shut off for some reason here. <laughs> okay. No idea. All right, hold on. Yeah. yeah. I see you. Yeah, but now I got audio issues. Yep, you are delayed and I hear myself. Bear with me. All right. So answer a question in the meantime. Yep. Um I got you. <laughs> what about games based on IP? Oh, um, where do I start? I mean, yes, why not? But at the same time, risky. I mean, there are so many different answers to this question. I would, it's hard to know without a little bit more context, but uh, we've done a couple of IP games with our studios, and some of them have performed really well, and some of them less so. Um, it depends on the deal with the licensing company. So I would say like this, right? If you have a really good game idea and you can partner up with a, with a good IP that can kind of up the quality of the game and maybe potentially the target audience, and they're not asking for upfront cash, as considering I'm assuming you're indie, why not? I think that's a great thing. We were actually pitched this three days ago with, uh, with one, one of our own studios, and I uh, think it's an absolutely amazing idea. And the IP slash licensing company is offering very fair terms, and it's all past launch. So I think that is really good. Um, but most licensing and IP companies, you do actually have to pay. So you pay upfront, and then you pay a certain rev share in perpetuity, which can be quite dangerous. Um, but then this course, there is a great example recently. So I think it's called Multiversus, right? The game by uh, Warner Bros, I believe. And that's yeah, a great that's like example. An internal game. Yeah. And that's, that's how you do, you know, IPs that, that, the way that they've done this and brought in all these crazy characters and probably making a buttload of money on it, that's how you use IPs very properly like they did. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it's a really tough question because I wouldn't say... I wouldn't say that we've done enough deals here where I would qualify myself as the best person to answer. But we've we've licensed out our IP to, to different people to make more money. So, you know... We're talking to a lot of TV shows, merchandise companies, etc. So utilizing our own IP to, to maximize revenue for the company is something we've done a lot. But, you know, renting or licensing IPs from others, I'm honestly not experienced enough other than what I just told you. So, so yeah. from from our side, you have to you have to make sure you actually have the IP. So I had this happen a couple of years ago. Developer pitches a game. IP was fantastic. And he's like, but no publishers want to touch this. I was like, so do you have your, do you have an agreement already with the IP company? They're like, oh no, they wanted to wait until we got a publisher. It's like that kiss of death right there. <laughs> because the publisher nine times out of 10 wants to dictate and negotiate the terms of that license with the licensing partner. And if you come in and you're like, well, so-and-so said we could do, you know, a Bugs Bunny game if we get a publisher, but we don't actually 
have anything in writing that says that you're it, it, it's not going to go anywhere and and so you have to be very very careful but there's a lot to be said you know for doing it that's one of the things that we've been doing recently on the consulting side here is tracking down and hunting down ips for publishers and developers and then actually working with some of those to get them into games now because once again it's a very very big thing and it's partly because of things like multiverses and then like ninja turtles the shredder's revenge that just came back out companies see those types of games have success but look how long it took somebody to come up with something that was going to compete with smash brothers nickelodeon did it with their all-star brawl and that's the first one in what 20 years that you know had a prayer of of even competing with it and now multiverses is doing really really well and they announced uh I just saw the gizmo from gremlins is coming to that game i'm not sure how gizmo is going to fight but i mean if the Wii fit trainer can fight in smash brothers i guess there's some sort of possibility there i think um, the important thing to add though is like just because you find a good ip doesn't mean you'll be successful and i think that's why it's important that you know again the terms reflect you as an indie because you know we've uh, I mean, Warhammer is probably the greatest example of an IP where there are a lot of bad games, but then there are also a lot of amazing ones. But again, it just shows that there are studios that are not capable of delivering a great experience, even though they have an, an amazing IP like Warhammer. I have way too many hours in Total War Warhammer, for example. I love that game to death, well, all of them. And Absolutely, I, one of my favorites. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's insanely good. You know, the problem... No, like, I'm not going to go off topic. <laughs> <laughs> I, was like, I was like so close. We're, we're going to go on a complete rant about, you know, something. Stop. Um, <laughs> luckily, and I've been working with IPs for 25 years. You know, we were actually working on a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy game with Douglas Adams when he passed away, which made for the most depressing E3 I have ever been to because it was like three weeks before E3. And I have also worked and done a lot of the deals on those shitty GBA licensed games that we churned out so quickly in the late 90s, early 2000s. Luckily, and it's because of games like Fortnite and, you know, Spider-Man that, that came out, we aren't seeing as many shitty IP games anymore that are just like obvious cash grabs because now the industry has grown to the point where movie studios television studios book authors they look at our industry going okay we need to do something good there versus the old theory of well we've already got a successful movie book ip whatever it is yeah sure we'll sell off the game rights for a million dollars we don't give a shit what happens at the end anyway that has changed a lot so in many cases the ip holder is going to be as strict as willing to do due diligence on the team as a publisher would because they want to make sure they know games are a big deal now and they want to make sure you don't screw it up yeah, yeah. i'm still my, my system is still like laggy and screwy yeah you, here, you so still anyway. have some delay on your voice and the green screen is yeah it is dark green to light green it's throwing me off too all right anyway so how do you approach a publisher as a skills-based indie team for contract for hire to work on 
some ideas that the publishers had. You show skills, portfolio, team members, games. What do you do to get in the door and land some of this contract work that publishers have that you want? Honestly, the, the easiest way is by having a, a partner, an agent, or somebody who knows the publisher that can actually put you in front of the right uh, stakeholders. Because usually, and hopefully somebody that's close to you and knows who you are. Because when you get a vouch from somebody that you can deliver the quality that they're expecting, then this this is a very easy way in. Now, if you don't have that, let me just reread so I didn't misunderstand. You have to keep in mind, it's an extremely competitive venture. Yeah, because like I, I, I'm just rereading to double check. But yeah, there, there are so many studios, you know, battling for these publishers games. Yep. And, you know, right now, actually, we're we're helping a couple of our publishers look at some of our other portfolios to help with outsourcing to make the games, you know, like done faster. So they're going to us first because we have a good relationship. But otherwise, I'm sure they have another 100 options that they can use. And, and it's not just about... Uh, you know the team anymore it's also about cost right and i mentioned malaysia earlier southeast asia has a lot lower cost as well which is very attractive to these western-based publishers so a lot of times i've seen better studios lose the deal to somebody that just had a lower cost which is slightly like sadly a bit unfortunate um but i'm a bit curious as to what type of studio you are because uh, i'm not understanding the context whether you're just straight up you know contracting or if you have a you know a rev share here or you know what the full details of your questions so i i don't know how i can answer it better one thing is ever since the pandemic it's like when the pandemic hit a lot of these publishers went into turtle mode and they were only they weren't really looking at projects or, or contractors that they hadn't ever worked with before they started just basically continuing and doubling down with their existing studios and so it's much, much harder now than it was three, four years ago to get contract work. You've really got to show, it's like that same catch 22 with development in general. You've got to show that you've done it before you can get the deals that you need to show somebody that you've done it. And so it's, it's fair. Now the good news is if you get a contract work for hire deal from a publisher and you do well on it, you're pretty much going to be locked in for a good amount of time, you know, with that publisher because they don't want to take the risk of finding somebody else new. They know you can already do what you need to do, but in, as of where we are in 2022, it's very, very difficult for new studios to land contract work from publishers. Yep. All right. So we've got one more. If anyone has any other questions i actually know we have two more if you got questions pop them in the chat so we can get them so um, which chat are you talking about because somebody in discord asked where to drop the question um anywhere youtube twitch facebook or linkedin they'll all pop up on my little cheat sheet screen here all right so say for whatever reason the publishers that are the best match for my game the ones that specialize in my genre and or audience are not interested that leaves options like a more generic publisher or a new publisher without a track record, self-publishing, or maybe even canceling the game. How can I weigh up the best path in this scenario? That's a, that's a great question. And it also comes into a certain part about, you know, our strategy. So 
the, the way that we look at things in general, right? Is that okay? So if you do want to work with, with a publisher, you've decided that this is the only way you're going to launch the game. Then three different tiers. Tier one is you know your dream publishers. You believe this is the absolute you know best of the best. You think that this is the perfect partner for your game. You pitch them first because obviously these are the ones that you actually uh, want to sign with. And let's say like you said, okay, you're not getting through that list, and you have to go to the more generic ones. Well, you might have to go to the more generic ones, but there might be people in those publishers that have a background in your particular genre. Again, coming back to the due diligence on you doing the uh, you doing it for the publisher, there are a lot of new publishers coming out with a lot of money, and you know, yes, they might not have launched 20, 30, 40 games, but it might have really, really talented people that are in there. For example, there is a publisher called uh, Skystone Games that has David Brevik uh, like in it and Bill Wang, you know, like two really big people in the industry and they're looking to sign games right now and yes they i think they've only launched one game so far but they still have a very interesting background and that's something that might fit your particular genre so i of course would place them <clears throat> place them in tier two so it's not just about a generic publisher it's about who is actually part of your team a funny thing is that when we signed um our second game with uh with 505 because it's been announced so i can say that called Mad Shot. It's in early access now on Steam. When we were in the negotiations with 505 and doing, you know, the whole publisher due diligence call, we ended up getting, you know, our, our friends, the ones that we, like the, the business team that we negotiate with every time, because it turns out that this genre is their personal absolute favorites. It's what they're good at. It's what they love. So we ended up getting, you know, the so-called biggest people that do the business to actually work on, on the game that we, uh, that we we're creating with them, which was for us, really, really, really cool, and something that the, uh, the developers absolutely loved, and that's something that we expected because of their background, because of their expertise, they made a perfect fit. So, when you're doing the research in a tier two, go on LinkedIn, look at their backgrounds. Uh, what kind of games have they launched in their previous companies? Is it a good fit? And then they're kind of in the middle between tier one and tier two. And then, of course, let's say you fail with tier two as well, and now you basically just have you know the publishers that apparently you might not want to work with. Then yeah, you asked, do I want to cancel my game? Maybe, probably, because if you're only signing with these people to get their money with no other expectations, maybe that isn't the best way, you know? But there is a fourth option, which is that whatever you have, uh, assuming it's far enough, you could just launch it, you know? Get it out there, see how it goes, label it EA or, or as a demo or whatever, and see the reactions and try to get some more data to potentially sign something later. And of course, that could also mean talking to distribution partners and platforms and people like that that might be able to help you with additional marketing and support. And I guess there is a fifth one too, but there are also tier three in a way. The publishers that offer no money, but they offer the services and then they take a rev share for it. You know, you could always go to those as well. But, but I'm some assuming of those are not... actually really good publishers too. Yeah, yeah exactly. Really and uh, your game might, might not be ready yet, but at least you have something, right? So. And, and those are the ones that are generally the ones that don't put up funding, but they'll do rev shares. The ones in that group that are really good are typically really good because they focus on a very specific genre. And if your genre is not in that, they're not going to look at it anyway. One thing I'll say that I've noticed going back to the earlier early access questions. I have yet to see a publisher reject a game because it has been released on itch versus, you know, Steam and XFest. So we had Jasper from Backpack Hero on. He's got a publisher getting a publisher, that sort of stuff. But he had a huge 
I mean, you can play a good chunk of the game on itch for free. It's been like that for a long time. Then they did the Kickstarter as well. But if you want to get exposure and feedback on your game, a much safer way to do it to avoid jeopardizing potential publishing deals is releasing it on itch. And I mean, you could also go to, you know, G round, you know, yes, you could yes, hashtag advertise. Ob you know. Obviously. Yes. <laughs> Bingo. Uh, all right. So there's a question in chat. It's a long one, but I want to hit it because it is one of those things that has vexed me for my entire career as well. So okay. sparkling is working on a Christian based game. Uh, it's got the Bible in it game for Christians question is you know he says he stopped looking for money years ago because investors just wanted to remove the bible from the game taking the bible out of the game makes it completely different you know what is the deal how likely is it to get funding for an overtly christian themed game this is something that has always been a question to me the christian based game and i will go as far as to say not just christianity religious based games at all are generally horrible from a gameplay point of view. And there's a multitude of reasons for that, but it is hard to get investment from it. And it's mostly a political thing, but it is such a huge market. If someone were to put out an actual honest God, no pun intended, good game, with the Bible in it or the Christian in it or whatever religion it may be, I think it would be a huge seller. It wouldn't, you'd have to go directly to a lot of the Christian based stores. I don't think you're going to sell bajillions of copies on steam for it, but it is one of those things. It's always made me wonder with that size market out there and doing a actually good game. Why aren't more, investors and publishers looking at that but i think you kind of hit the nail there there are no good games really yet in in the like in, of religious games that i've seen most of them sadly aren't, aren't that amazing so it's very hard for investors or publishers to uh you know see a success case right so if there were success cases in the market and you'd actually have seen that this kind of product worked before then there's a much higher chance of like proving a future success but i think to answer the question in more detail i think your only way to find money is by going to you know Christian inv investors, and I'm sure there are a lot of them, and I'm sure there are, and religion in general, no matter which type of religion you're you're into, is very giving overall. Like it's a lot about support and you know community, and I think that there might be a lot of people within that community that potentially wants to finance a game, or in this case, entertainment for that community. So I think you would have to find that niche, and I'm sure there are groups, and maybe the whole friends and family slash angel way is better there, because if you can find Christian angels that actually wants to, uh, I realized the pun there. <laughs> God damn it. I saw you laughing, and I'm like, <laughs> anyway, if you can find Christian angel investors, then that actually might be your best way to get the game to a point where potentially you might find uh, uh, other investors. But I do think it will be hard finding a publisher in, in, in a niche like this because yeah. there are no specific religious-based or Christian-based publishers as far as I'm aware. So no, there are. Likely, like, there, there are some, but all their games are horrible. Oh, okay. Well, I, I, what I was going to say was I, I think the best way forward would be self-publishing and figuring out a marketing strategy of how to reach that audience. You mentioned yourself, maybe not Steam. Maybe it has to be physical editions. 
I'm not sure. I mean, again, I, I wouldn't say I'm an expert here, but I think you definitely have to approach everything very differently than other types of games. It is an absolute huge market that has not yeah. been properly tapped. And part of the reason is simply because the games are not that good. But yes, Pontus is dead on. You got to find, you're going to have to do what we would refer to as non-traditional routes of funding. And then you're going to have to do most likely self-publishing and going and setting up direct deals and doing a whole lot of grassroots marketing with Christian organizations and things like that. But there is so much money in religion that yeah. I know it can be done. And if somebody does it and puts a good game out, they're going to have a huge seller on their hands. Um, all right. The, the the question that I've been waiting for the whole every time we start talking about publishers and investors, the problem with publishers, they just want to do advertising mm -hmm. and they want 20,000 wish lists to take you first. Absolutely off, that's not incorrect. True. Yes. Yeah, there you go. Not always the case. And the ones that are like that. Yeah. You don't want to work with them. So if you have 20,000 wish lists, then why do you need a publisher? Okay, well, first of all, again, incorrect statement. Like 99% of the games we have signed had almost no wish lists at all. And, and some of them that are signed already have not yet started the wish list acquisition and also don't have it. Or some of them are not even on Steam yet. So it's, it's not an accurate statement. They don't need 20K wish lists. And by the way, the conversion rate to wish lists, it might have changed nowadays, but I believe it was 8% before and even 85 lower. Yeah. lower now. Yeah. I think it's lower. So the conversion on your wish list to sales is super low. So 20,000 wish lists does not mean you're going to be successful at all. So why would you need a publisher? Well, if you don't know how to do marketing, you don't know how to do PR distribution or even working with platforms, these are things that publishers, well, most of them, are great at doing. So these are services you're normally not aware of. And <clears throat> one of our biggest reasons why we recommend our studios to work with a publisher for their first game is to get knowledge. It's not just about getting the money and the support. It's about getting knowledge, working with all the departments of the publisher, learning from them, watching their planning, their productions, watching everything that they're doing to the smallest detail so that we can replicate it later on in case we do want to self-publish or even better, we love our publisher and we keep working with them and we keep getting funding from them. So it's a great way to get started and do so. And you can find people who can probably get you a hundred thousand wish lists, let's say performance marketers out there for, I don't know, zero, three dollars per wish list or something. It's still money you have to spend. It does not guarantee to a sale. So it, what you're saying, I, I think you're looking at it from the wrong perspective. Um, if the services that I just mentioned are what you need, then that's a good reason to go to a publisher. If you can do marketing internally and you believe you can make your game successful, then do it on your own. It, so, he does yeah. say that that actually came from a publisher that told him that. And I don't doubt that. Really? Because there are publishers that are that are going to say that. There's also publishers that are going to say, we want you to have 100,000 wish lists. But, you know, part of the reason is 20,000 wish lists at the end of the day is not nearly as much sales as you may think and it's even less revenue because the majority of those sales are going to come during a steam sale so yeah. you're not getting full price for your stuff anyway but it's not unheard of to have indie teams preparing to launch with two hundred thousand wish lists you know so you there's a whole lot there are multiple talks that we've done that are on the youtube page on the podcast about everything a publisher does is it 
the best case for everybody? No, there's always going to be circumstances where, you know, you're better off doing it on your own. Maybe you don't need it, whatever. It's, there is no one solution for everybody, but there is a whole lot that a good publisher does beyond just getting wish lists and promoting the game to those people. No, and again, don't name them, Arthur. <laughs> I was going to say, like, the, the 20,000 wish lists at the game is just uh, in order to de risk, right? If there are a lot of wish lists, it means people are at least interested in your concept and it helps your pitch. Yes. But I've never heard this being a must. No publisher has told that to, to us so far. And we work with a lot of them. So that, that's kind of weird. Of course, they always ask the question how many wish lists do you have? Because again, the more you have, the more relevant your game is. But if you don't have them, I mean, it's not a red flag at all. It's just yeah. like, okay, you're not there yet. So. I mean, and tell them, look, we don't have wish lists because we're a development studio. Yeah. We're not experts in, in marketing. So that's yeah. where we need help. All right. I'm going to call this last question. <laughs> okay. What's the last question? What resources are available to developers to understand the audience and market for a game idea that we have? Okay. So I think... I want to advertise you here. I would gladly drop my big data dump of research like websites that I can send, but it's impossible for me to list them all in my head. But we have a huge database of, you know, how to research genres, like sales, marketing strategies, community, like it's massive. Okay. And uh, this is a great way to get started. It, it, it may be massive, but it's not that hard to research. It will take maybe 20 to 40 hours to go through a lot of these things over, over a month. And it's a great way to get started. And we have, you know, pitch decks, we have uh, like the research, we have wish lists, we have sales, like everything. And we, this is a great baseline to get started because I, I can give you one website, but that's not really going to help you. So I'll gladly, if you guys go to in the game business discord, I'll gladly drop everything. And cause it's all free and it's all out there on the internet. And uh, you can take a look at each individual research and see what's more fitting for you. And I think this is the best way because otherwise, you know, I can talk here for 20 minutes about individual opinions, but at the end of the day, this list of dumps, which by the way, came from Eve from Focus. Thank you for that. We used to have one of our own, but he apparently found double as much as we have. I think he has so, actually put that in the, yes. Eve is like one of our favorite publishers on the server because yes. he posts a lot of the stuff. And if you ask, especially if you tag him in it, he'll ask, I mean, we were standing outside the hotel in Skleftia when we were ready to go somewhere and I turned around and asked Eve to get off his phone. We were leaving and he looked at me and he goes, I'm answering questions on your discord server right now. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> oh, well in that case, take your time. We'll um, go ahead and start eating without you. Um, yeah, but that's the best way I think go, go to Jay's discord and you know, I can drop that big thing. It's a great way to get started, but I mean, uh, let me answer it in a different way where you should know who you're targeting before you make your game, not just doing research about it. Like before you start developing your prototype, ideally you have thought about, oh, okay, you know, RPG gamers will like this, or this kind of art style is good in the West or it's good in Asia. Like these are questions you should answer before you even, you know, start pitching publishers or start building out your whole game. If you don't have this idea when you're building your game, you shouldn't start yet because ultimately you're trying to create a product that is going to generate sales. So this research needs to be done before you create your product as much as possible and look at all the mechanics you're trying to do, the art style you want to do and so forth. And there should be a small answer there at what kind of audience you'll initially have. And That's, don't yeah. come to us and tell us that your game is going to appeal to everyone. 
Yes. Please don't put the new Sue slide of the global market 1835 mail like every time. I'm like, you know, half the time I'm like, you do realize that half the world's gamers are female, right? They might play your game as well. (laughs) The um the big problem that I see, and we're working with a couple of these um groups to at least these sites, these research companies to help create some content along this line it's like it's fine that the content is free and you can research it but if you don't know what to do with it or you don't know how to dissect the data that you get it doesn't do anybody any good and and that's like whenever i have these companies that come to us the the steam spies and, and all that sort of stuff and they're like so what's the biggest issue i'm like you have a wonderful set of tools nobody knows how to use them and, and it, yeah. one of the things that and I'm not as familiar with all the different ones out there. And there are plenty of them. VG insights actually uh, from one of the guys in our discord came, that came from um, there's like steam data suite, the steam spy. I know steam spy used to have a feature where you could actually create a Venn diagram of the number of users who had two particular games. And it was one of the coolest slides I've ever saw in a pitch deck because, you know, the team came in and they said, Okay, here's game A, and they didn't go pick gigantic AAA games. You know, they picked you know realistic targets. Here's game A. Here's game B. Our game is a mixture of the two of them, and here's the Venn diagram of Steam users who have both of those games on their in the, in their library. And I thought that was like extremely extremely cool and handy. But it's it's one thing we'll put the list on there, and I'll even sticky it and put it up in the developer resources channel when Ponta sends it over. But the other thing is you really have to know how to use it. And that's yes. where the biggest issue comes in. Um, yeah, I found I think, a list. So just tell me where to dump it after. Oh, uh, just dump it. Just dump it in the podcast okay. questions chat. I'll figure it out. I'll, I'll put okay. it where it needs to be. Um, that's it. That's all our questions. We almost went two hours. All right. So we're going to split this up into two podcasts and put it out there. Um, there will be a synopsis from our good friends over at premortem games in the next week or two. So as we get all that written up, um, they have been fantastically hosting some of our, um, breakdowns and summaries of, of, of these talks, including the one from Jacques, the newest member of global top round team that you know i found out in germany um always pontus <laughs> thank you so much for staying up till the butt crack at midnight you know to do this if you are interested in funding you know. and you want to go potentially hang out with with pontus and i in which i don't know what lumia lulia where are we going lulia, lulia. <laughs> i can't pronounce um Go like immediately and sign up, go to globaltopround.com and submit your game. You got about 12 hours left to get it in there. Um, You can get, and if you don't get it, there's another one. So that was a question. So we had somebody say, my game's not ready right now. So for the folks that aren't ready today, or, you know, the game needs to percolate a little more. When is your next one? So let me maybe yeah, very quickly recap. So our top 10 program is, you know, once a year the conference happens and it's, you know, in Q3 or Q4 usually. And there's like a nine month scouting period and it's a three month kind of picking period. But actually nowadays you can submit your game at any time. Now, obviously the next three months or even four will be very busy because we're reviewing 450 applications that we've gotten in the last month. And that's a lot of studios, a lot of pitch decks and a lot of builds. Um, 
And then, you know, we're going to do the event and then we're going to be doing studio visits and yada, yada. So the next four months is very busy. Now, starting Q1 next year, you can send it to us already. And like I said, feel free to send what you're working on. You don't necessarily have to pitch, at, pitch us yet. Just show us where you're at. A couple months later, let us know. So our first program, again, you can send it anytime. Ultimately, we'll conclude at the end of the year. Our second program, we launched a seed program earlier this year, which is uh, for a slightly larger studio. So if you're not super indie and you're listening to the podcast and you're looking for seed funding around 150 to 300K, this program is, is 365 days a year. So you can just reach out to us at any time, scouting at globaltoprun.com, pitch us your game. This is a completely open program, not connected to the GTR conference. So we have other things in the works as well. But I mean, today was not too much about us. It's about you guys. So we'll leave it to you in the Q&A today. It was about you guys and then all the companies that Pontus is going to name drop throughout the entire podcast. Was Dude, that was not even planned. You, you, you just went with it, so I, just had, I decided to meme you the whole you know, event. <laughs> I, I love this. This is why I do this show. <laughs> all right. So, everyone, thank you. As always, you can go to discord.gg slash business and join the Discord. 4,000 other developers, publishers, investors, service providers are all on there. Very wonderful space. Very safe space. Ask any question. People very smart like, you know, Eves and, and Pontus and uh, lots of other publishers and developers are, are going to answer your questions. Um, grab your ticket for the Indie Game Business Sessions conference coming the 21st and 22nd. Thanks, as always, to our wonderful friends at Tripwire Presents. Be sure to put them on your list of publishers that you pitch your game to because they are absolutely looking for, you know, new titles and they have one coming up that I played at Gamescom called Deceit, which is... I'm probably going to butcher this, but I'm going to say it's Among Us meets Counter-Strike. And yeah, it's cool. I watched the, I, I watched the desk play. Um, so that's coming up. All, as always for our conferences, The if you want to watch the sessions, participate in the sessions, that's 100% free. If you get an official ticket, we will send you all the slide decks afterwards. And if you want to use the Meet the Match system, there's over... 100 or so companies that are already in that those tickets are 50 bucks and if you cannot afford it i understand that completely and if you've got a demo to sh you know show and you need to pitch dm me send me a message send me an email i will hook you up i always love doing that that's why we do these shows and with that i think i've covered everything that we're going to cover today anything else no well, all right for having me <laughs> awesome. Thanks, everybody. And we will see you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at IndieGame.Business.